And we trust that the Lord will minister to each of our hearts as we seek to bring worship and praise into his presence. This morning, or this afternoon, unlike other times of opening services, rather than making announcements, sometimes people come in late or whatever, but rather even than that is the fact that we want to just get right into worship this morning. So our brother is going to come up here and read for us the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. Listen as our brother opens the word and opens us up this morning. I don't mind saying good morning. Before I read this passage, um, I want to reference some obscure passage that will try to tie it together. We're all familiar with the um, Exodus 12 about the Passover lamb. Everyone, I this lamb was to be chosen on the 10th day of the month. And it was to be set aside, examined, scrutinized, to make sure there were no defects whatsoever, no blemishes, no flaws. It wasn't a, to be a part of his ear clipped off or scars of any kind on him. He wasn't supposed to limp or be blind in one eye. It was to be flawless because of the person in whom it would be offered and sacrificed to, God Almighty. And they were to keep this lamb for four days. Could you imagine having that responsibility? Every day to go out and examine that lamb, make sure that lamb was just impeccable. And I like to think it's not an original thought at all. I like to reference that, tie that in with our Lord Jesus as God's lamb, God's perfect lamb. I believe, I like to believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, our Lord entered Jerusalem four days before the Passover. And the likes of the Pharisees the Herodians, and as we will soon read, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes. Anyone that was of any importance, I'm sure, examined, critiqued, looked intently at this person for any flaws, any defects, anything they could accuse him of just to go, aha, we've got you now. So with that in mind, I would like to read the portion before us, and I might make one, one reference to the same account in Matthew just for one verse, just to kind of add it in. Luke 20. Now he had just finished with the Pharisees. Show us a coin. Show me a coin. Why, why tempt ye me? 
They asked him about, remember they asked him about the baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? And they got together in, in the term, we, we, we can't say. And Jesus said, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Always trying to catch him in his words. Why tempt ye me? Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, can't you just feel the saying, Master? Can't you just feel that, the, the deceit behind the Master? Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her to wife, and he died childless. The third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. Matthew adds this little, um, this little tidbit. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife, and Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And I believe it was probably in Matthew's gospel. It adds that other verse. After that, no man, no man durst ask him any questions. You remember the two or three officers that were sent 
Apprehend him and bring him to us, Caiaphas had requested, demanded, commanded. So they went out to apprehend the Lord. After a while, they came back to Caiaphas, and they were empty-handed. Now, without trying to sound dramatic, I'm sure Caiaphas didn't go, Hey, guys, what happened? I don't see him with you. I'm sure he pounded his fist. Where is he? Why have you not brought him? What was their response? Never. Not occasionally. Not from time to time. Here, here or there, not every blue moon. Never man spake like this man. And so our Lord was examined by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Last of all, last of all, I bring him before you, Pilate said, three times, that ye may know that I find no fault in this man. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for that wonderful account. I know my words and thoughts fall so short, but I thank you that you'd bless them and use them. I think of the service before us, Lord. I'm just on the edge of my seat, as I'm trusting all of us are, have been praying throughout the week for our brother to lift him up, pray, blessed God, that you would anoint him powerfully, powerfully, O oh God, that the words might be just penetrate us from our ears down into our hearts, blessed Lord, that we would hear. Oh God, we come here today to hear your voice. Might your son be glorified, exalted in our presence. Might your spirit, oh God, have its free course to move in this building. Might we feel the pillars of this building shake with the word, blessed God, to your glory and honor. And after that, Lord, it's a, such a special time to first Sunday of the month to come to that cross. Remembering that every spot around that cross is sacred ground. Every spot around that, that, that your precious blood, O oh Lord, dripped on that ground. Might we gaze in wonder and adoration once again. Might we in some small way, Lord, receive a, a fresh vision of Calvary, Lord that might affect us so powerfully that, that we're, we're not able to move, so to speak. Lord, be with us around thy table. We desire so much your presence, Lord. Bless us. Lead us out, blessed Lord. Oh, go with us. As Moses said, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, lead us not up. Oh, Lord, be with us in such a way that everyone from the oldest to the youngest Help us to put aside all distractions, anything that would exalt itself against you, Lord, and, and rob us of our thoughts and, and our meditations, whether they be uh, audible or silent, Lord. Hear every one of us. We ask it in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Could we get the title of the sermon up here?
Do you remember the first time you went into a funeral home to a funeral? How old were you when you went? Do you recall? Anybody under 10? Raise your hand. Remember going to one under 10? How about between 10 and 15? Uh, you know, I didn't go until I was 21. And I knew a lot of people that died. I was fearful of death. Well, I, I heard some spooky stories. A cousin of mine actually uh, was in a funeral at a, at a wake, I should say. And the wake is very emotional. You know, it's the first time you're seeing a loved one in the casket. And uh, she went to embrace her loved one and just lifted up the body and the body fell apart in her arms. Hearing a story like that and some others not exactly that serious uh, kind of gave me the, ugh, the heebie-jeebies, I guess you could call them. I mean, it was, it felt, it just seemed so peculiar. Now, this particular, probably Mark Campbell might know who this is. I mean, and this brother is with the Lord. I did his funeral about a year ago. And I know if he was here, he'd say, put, my, put me up on the screen. If you can use anything for preaching the gospel, please do. He was one of the best, the greatest evangelists I've ever met in the way in which he reached out with the gospel. But I want you to turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're just going to read three verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. I'm reading in the ESV, which should match our overhead. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, who have no hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. How many of you yesterday maybe got a chance to glimpse a little bit at the coronation of King Charles yesterday? Anybody get to see that on the, on the television screen or record it? Maybe not. Okay, well, it made me think, and I always do when I see royalty what it must be like to grow up in a royal home. You know, you look at a little baby or a, 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 a toddler who's going to be in line and is in line, bloodline of, of the kings of, of England and someday possibly could be wearing the crown. Not only that, but he's going to grow up in a very, very special home, a home that the paparazzi is going to chase him all around the world. There'll be publicity about him Throughout the world, he's going to be treated royally wherever he goes. The red carpet will be rolled out before him. He will be praised. He will be honored. He will be famous. He will be powerful. And at this age, he has no idea, like these little ones that are in in the room. They have no, he had no or has no idea of what's ahead of him. Well, you know, when Paul says here, we do not want you to be uninformed, there are things that God wants us to know of what we have and even questions that we may have that we might not have answers for. 
I didn't have an answer for. Where did the dead go? Even though I was reading the Bible at that time, 19, I started, 19 and a half, I started reading the Bible, and I was really seeking diligently to understand God and the things of God. God wants us to be informed. Paul says to the Corinthians over and over again in his epistle, these things I write unto you so that you won't be ignorant, so that you won't be uninformed. There are lots of things I suppose that we feel uninformed about, but it is our responsibility to search the scriptures. These things are written so that we might know. Jesus says in searching the scriptures, you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. So we are expected to know. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse one, uh, 51, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I'm going to show you a mystery. In other words, something that you don't know right now that I want you to know about. He even says earlier in chapter 11 that I received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you, how the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in the remembrance of me. Those are the kinds of things the Lord wants us to know. There are things that are written in the scriptures that Paul could allude to, but then there are other things that he had to reference himself to fill in the gap so that they would understand. And one of the things that was puzzling to the, to the Thessalonians, they were a young, a young body of believers. They were uninformed. And here he's writing to them, like he would to all of us, that we would be informed. So number one, we should be informed. What should we be informed about? Secondly, we want to be informed about this word, asleep. He uses that in verse 14, those who are asleep. Verse 14, he says again at the end of the verse, those who have fallen asleep, It's not talking about in the sermon today. Um, The end of verse 15, again, the words will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So here we have this expression, sleeping. How does the Bible use the word sleep? It uses the word sleep in three different ways. One of them is the natural way, obviously. You fall asleep. When Jesus said about Lazarus, he's asleep. He was not referring to his natural sleep, but the disciples interpreted that word. Well, that's good if he's sleeping. We say that about people that are ill. Well, if they're sleeping, that's good for them because they're on the road to recovery, hopefully. So the word sleep is used there and elsewhere. First Thessalonians 5 uh, says, let us not sleep, using the word in reference to that pose that position that we get in at nighttime when we go into a state of dreams unconsciousness or however you you want to think of it we're just out as we say that's what's natural it's jesus says about the, the the five wise and the five foolish the five foolish they slumbered and slept they were lazy they were sleeping often Peter, James, and John, when they went up to the mount, 
when Je- Gethsemane, I should say, when Jesus went to pray, it says they fell asleep. That's the natural way the word sleep is understood. But then there's a spiritual aspect to it. And I referenced it there in Thessalonians because this is how Paul is using it as an analogy. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Let us be spiritually awake. The unconverted are classified as being spiritually dead or spiritually asleep. And the Christian too can become in a state that's sort of sleeping-like in the sense we're not spiritually alert. As it says in Ephesians 5.24, Awake thou that sleepest, and Christ shall give you life. He's writing to the church of Ephesus, to those who are alive in Christ, but that have fallen asleep spiritually. He's saying, wake up. The capacity to be spiritual is real for you. Get out of that state, that spiritual state of stupor. And we have to ask ourselves that question, what kind of spiritual state am I in? Am I in a a state of spiritual death or quietness? Or am I in a, a state of spiritual alertness? And am I awake? Now, the last one that I want to say and and spend more time on this is how the word sleep is used in a metaphysical way or a sheep sleep-like state. It's called the intermediate state, the state between death and your bodily resurrection. In Daniel 12, 1, 2, it says, Many of them that sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life, in some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's the use of that word referring to those that are dead. When you look in a cemetery and you see all those tombs, all the bodies in that cemetery could be said to be asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul talks about the sequence of who Jesus revealed himself to after his resurrection. He refers to Peter and James. And then he says, into 500 brethren or or brothers and sisters at one time and he says of whom many of them are now asleep so the 500 that jesus appeared to in roughly 25 years or so prior to paul's writings he says they have died and he's using the analogy of saying many of those who jesus appeared to of the 500 many of them have already died they're asleep is how he class how they're classified Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned in, after his final prayer, it says he gave up his, his last, and it says, and he fell asleep. Interestingly, right in that context, sort of an aside, when Ananias and Sapphira died, do you think Ananias and Sapphira were saved people? Hard to say, isn't it? You know, they lied to God, the Holy Spirit. They coveted the monies that they had. They, they claimed that they were given so much when it wasn't all that they had to give. And that made, that, that's not a ground for dismissing them. But nevertheless, it doesn't say about them when they died that they fell asleep. It says they fell down and gave up the ghost or gave up the spirit. Interesting. I don't know how much I would want to make out of that because two chapters later when, when Stephen is stoned, it says that he fell asleep. And right before that, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Something similar that's written in Luke when Jesus is about to die. He says, Lord, into, 
into thy hands I commend my spirit. Matthew 27, 52, it says many of the bodies, and we've talked about this recently, how strange this is, that bodies that were in the grave just at Jesus' resurrection came out of the graves and they went into the city of Jerusalem. That is like mind-blowing, isn't it? But it says this about them. Many of the bodies of the saints who slept arose. There again is the use of the word sleeping, referencing the condition of the body that's in the grave. And then the Old Testament, which again, the Old Testament is like, uh, how should I describe it? Maybe as twilight compared to daylight. It's one is giving way to the other. The, the, uh, the day is just beginning to, to come, so to speak. And that's how the Old Testament is. The light has dawned. It's surely there. It's brightened up the skies. But it's not till the sun really bursts forth, S-O-N. And when the S-O-N, Jesus comes, and when the New Testament is written, now we get the fullest revelation. Now we have the brightness of the whole revelation of God that comes to light in the New Testament. But of the Old Testament people that died, this is repeated many times, and I have gone through this lots of different times. I have noticed over and over again when different ones died, it says they were gathered unto their fathers. Gathered unto their fathers. And it didn't have to do with the burial ground where they were buried at times. They could have been buried miles and miles away from each other. And yet it says when the individual died, he was gathered unto his fathers. Again, this is Old Testament language. We have an enhancement of our understanding of where people go after they die. When Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain, he gives us Luke 16 about the rich man and the beggar when they die in the state that occurs immediately after death is an enlightenment to us. And it says about the New Testament of of Christ who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we don't want to think of the Old Testament as inferior, but we have to understand the Old Testament as being, you could say, the first chapter in the New Testament is the last chapter. First being, let's say it's a two-chapter book. The first chapter is followed by its sequel, the New Testament, and we have the fuller revelation in it. And we can praise God that we are in a day when we could have someone like the inspired Apostle Paul who writes and who had taught what happens in this condition after one dies and before the resurrection. He doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Why is this such a big issue in the book of Thessalonians? Well, just like other books of the New Testament, especially epistles, most of them were written for correctional purposes. There were things that were in the minds of those who were being addressed in the epistle who had confusions about various things or uncertainties, questions, maybe doubts. And the purpose of the epistle was to correct their misunderstandings or to give them more light on things that they didn't quite understand. And one of the things that was an error in the background here of the book of the Thessalonians was that the Thessalonians believed that those who died were going to miss out on the second coming of Christ. Miss out on it. They are misinformed. Why? Because they were pagans. Pagan, paganism and Christianity 
are widely different from one another. So what they had learned and believed in their pagan era is not going to be something that's going to hold up doctrinally with what the New Testament and what the Bible teaches. And that was therefore needful for the apostle to correct that. The Greek or the pagan view uh, of death was that it was final. It was final. So you can look at it this way. If they believed that death was final, then the second coming of Christ would have been extremely desirous because what would that do? They would be alive at Christ's coming, which means they would never have to die, right? Those that are alive at his coming will remain to be alive. But what about those that are dead? The Thessalonians had it misconstrued and thought they're going to miss out on the resurrection. They're going to miss out on the second coming of Christ. And not only that, possibly, that they were going to miss out being together either at the second coming or in the future anyway. That was a concern to them. You see, Jesus' resurrection carries for us an understanding of our own resurrection. Because if Christ didn't rise, then nobody will rise. So that's where the focus has to be on Christ's resurrection. And there was no doubts in the minds of the Thessalonians that Jesus had risen from the dead. But the second coming... That was something that left them a little uncertain. And we don't have all the answers even, and we'll talk more about the rapture next week. There are lots of questions that could be posed about the rapture and how that's actually going to shake out, so to speak, when you have pregnant women here with their babies in the belly. Um, Try to figure that one out at the second coming. I mean, the baby can't get separated from you, right? So, I mean, what age am I going to be at the second coming? coming of Christ when my body is changed am I going to look like an old hag now or am I going to look like when I was a spring chicken I don't know I mean these are questions the Bible doesn't give answers to we'll just have to wait them out and not be impatient and trying to get the answers now but another thing too that I think and this has real I think practical application for us because he says about how those that have died have create, and as you read in the gospel of math, in the gospels in general, when someone dies, there's always mourning associated with it. Always, um, Jesus went into the home where the woman, uh, the young girl's body was upstairs, right in in bed. She was dead, which means when they when, when they die, they wash the body, they prepare it uh, momentarily to be buried. But Jesus is coming. <laughs> what a difference he can make, right? When he's coming. Even even Mary and Martha said, Lord, we told you two days ago that our brother was sick. Why didn't you come sooner? If you had come, he would not have died. What confidence they had in Christ. And truly, he could have prevented Lazarus from dying, right? Because he is the resurrection and the life. He's the life giver. He gives life and he takes life. He could have sustained Lazarus' life. He could have healed his body. He could have raised him. He could have give, he gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf, etc., etc. Could he not have done? But wait a minute. Jesus said, the reason why I delayed is for the glory of God. And we don't understand sometimes why certain things happen certain ways, why God doesn't intervene, but we can always be sure it's going to be for the glory of God ultimately, even though we can't see it at the present moment. Why were they grieving? It says that you may not grieve as others 
who have no hope. Their kind of grief versus the grief of what believers should have as grief are distinct. There's no elimination of grieving. This is not Paul's point here. He's saying that grieving isn't inappropriate. Of course it's appropriate. We see it throughout the Bible. God doesn't rob us of the natural because of the spiritual or because of our understanding of resurrection life, of the life after death, of survival after death, of being in Christ's presence after death. We understand that. And God's not trying to eliminate that part, but that's not what the concentration is here as we're reading in the book of Thessalonians. See, an unbalanced emphasis on the victory over death, which is what we have, victory over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Our number one enemy, or the last enemy, I should say, is death. And we can point at it, but really not point at it till it's finally destroyed because it has not yet been eliminated. We know the effects of it can't take its full force on the believer. Jesus says, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He also says, fear God who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him, Luke 12, verse 2. So we understand this about the afterlife, and we understand that when believers die, they go to glory. But Paul's not not emphasizing that aspect of man's dualistic nature, the material and the immaterial. Let me try to unpack that a little bit. An unbalanced emphasis on the victory of our victory over death versus the solemnity and the dominion or yeah the dominion that death creates that it divides I should say the division that death creates you're separated from your loved ones it bring being in heaven in spirit is one thing and not lying silent and alone in the cold grave in a cold grave is another thing you see christian fur, uh, funerals oftentimes turn out to be carnivals Christian funerals oftentimes turn out to be carnivals if we don't recognize the morbidity of death. There is still the sting of death. Families crying at loved ones. And maybe you can picture your own family member lying cold in the casket and the feelings that gripped you. And if they were believers, the grip should still be there. The grief, the sorrow, the sadness... And how could I emphasize this any more and highlight it any more than when Jesus went to Lazarus' grave? Mary and Martha had already said, Lord, I know that he's going to rise at, at the resurrection. I understand that we're going to be reunited, but they're still in a state of sobriety and mourning and weeping. And as they go out to the graveside, Jesus accompanies them. And what does Jesus do? The shortest verse in the Bible that even Beth can memorize. (laughs) What is it, Beth? Right, Jesus wept. Two words in the English, which is actually in the Greek, not the shortest. But okay, so Jesus wept, the smallest verse in the Bible, shortest verse, John 11, 35. Jesus wept. He grieved. Now, 
get a hold of this. Here he is, the resurrection and the life. The one that can see the unseeable, who, who views the unviewable. He knows where Lazarus is. He understands the afterlife. He knows where he's going when he dies, when he commends himself to the Father. When he says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. But why is it? Because Jesus is lowering himself to our level. Here his humanity is blossoming. This weeping of Jesus tells us something about our Savior, our gentle and lowly Lord Jesus, that he has this kind of empathy for the family. They were all mourning. Martha and Mary meant much to him, and so didn't Lazarus. This was a wonderful trio. This was a godly family. He saw him being torn away from the sisters was grievous to him. Jesus couldn't stand the effects of death. He was angry and furious at the effects of Adam's sin on mankind. When the widow's son was being escorted out in a casket to be buried, Jesus stops the funeral. And he goes over and he touches the casket and he says, rise. And he took him by the hand and gave him to his mother. Because why? It says he had compassion on his mother. Compassion on his mother. Same thing in other examples when Jesus raises people from the dead. An only daughter, an only son, and an only brother. Jesus rose from the dead. Compassion. Grief is appropriate. Don't think that as a believer, because you're weeping or crying, and I've seen some very sad things happen in the funeral home when the loved one's lying in the casket, tears shed to the uttermost, and words spoken even to the lifeless body because of the recalling of the times and memories that they've had, and now they're divided from one another. Thank God we know that the story is not ended. Thankfully, we know there's a, a greater day ahead, and that's what Paul's going to get to. We're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. We'll talk about that next week. But I do want to emphasize that because I think we have turned funerals into carnivals, and we sing, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away, some glad morning, when the, I'll fly, that's very true. And I don't want to eliminate that aspect. Because Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You see, the unsaved, they don't have that prospect for their, the, the one that dies. If they're a believer now, that's un, 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 be sure you understand that. We have that confidence and knowledge that they're part of the spirits of just men made perfect. They're in glory right now, absent from the body, present with the Lord. George Whitfield said, sudden death means sudden glory. So we can emphasize that point, can't we? Sudden death is sudden glory. When the Lord takes you or takes her or takes any one of us here, at death, it's glory land you're in, brothers and sisters. You're with Christ just like the thief was told when he asked Jesus, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. Is there any doubt of where that thief would have gone? Would you have any doubt if you believe the word of God and it tells you that you can have this perfect peace with God and assurance that when you die, you'll go to heaven, that you'll be with Christ? These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's the power of the gospel. Let's not 
ignore or minimize the truth of grief. And Jesus is our example of one that grieved even in the face of the knowledge that death really has no final sting. It's only a temporary bite that has no permanent power over the believer in his destiny. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. No hope. I can't think of a more sobering word to describe a person's future, his reasons to live, his objective of life, his prospects, to have no hope. In Ephesians 2, it describes those of the state that they were in, that we were in before we were converted, when we were outside of the, the commonwealth of Israel, we were outside of the covenants and the promises and the covenants of Israel, that we were, we were without God, without Christ, and without hope in this world. We are the people of hope. That's a gigantic word, to have hope. Now, hope, we use it in our vernacular as being a possibility. I'm hoping that I hit the lottery. I'm hoping that I'm born on my father's birthday. I'm hope, you know, this hope thing implies uncertainty or doubt of whether or not it's going to be completed the way I want it to be completed. The Bible doesn't use it that way. It says to rejoice in hope. Hope doesn't make ashamed. Scripture says we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope? Hope is something that we can grasp as a reality. We have a blessed hope and a blessed prospect ahead of us. Even Jesus himself is described as looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our hope, and that's why you have hope, because he is our hope. What confidence we have. For the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit. The hope that is laid up for you in heaven. There's no hope that we can have in this world that everything's going to turn out the way that we want to, but our ultimate hope that we really are depending on and counting on and knowing that's ahead of us is the hope of being with Christ for time in eternity when that unfolds in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, verse 14, now this is the part that's really, really a sticker. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's two possibilities, isn't there, of the way one could look at this. Let's look at this again, the second half of it. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who are those, those who have fallen asleep. How is this to be understood? It could be two possibilities. One, when Jesus returns, he's coming with them, which means it's not referencing the body, but it's referencing the soul. Because if Jesus is in heaven, and when we die, we go to be with the Lord. In my Father's house are many mansions. That's where our, that's where our destiny is. 
That's what we'll be moments after we die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So when He comes, it says that the Father will bring with Him, with Jesus, back from heaven to earth those who have fallen asleep, whose bodies are in the grave, whose spirits are alive with Christ, are going to be reunited with the body. That's one very definite possibility. And to tell you the truth, I'm uncertain about this one or the next one. The second one would be that the Lord, the Father, is going to bring with Jesus those up from the grave whose bodies are described as having fallen asleep. They're going to be together with Christ. But see, the problem, though, with the second one is, is the person in the grave or is the person in heaven? So the way I like to understand it is that we are composed of two eyes. The letter I, me. There's two me's. Let me simplify that. There's a me that goes to heaven and there's a me that goes into the ground. Whether it's a, a body burial, whether it's a cremation, whether you get eaten by the fish in the sea, however it is, those elements, those chemical parts of your body will be once regathered, will be in the future regathered and form again a body that you lived in before with those souls with the same chemical, uh, biological roots of your being, so to speak. That's never going to be disappeared. That will be always a reality that you will never not exist. So there's two aspects. It says, for instance, Stephen died, like I said before. He fell asleep, it says, verse 60 of chapter 7 of Acts. But right before that, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then it says, there was great lamentation made over Stephen's death, and they came and took Stephen's body and buried him. So where was Stephen? With the Lord and in the ground. David fell asleep, it tells us. Talking about his body, that his sepulcher is with us to this day. And if you've been to Jerusalem, I haven't. I've, they, they claim that they still have the, uh, the actual casket-like form of where David's body is placed in Jerusalem. I don't know if it's real or not. Uh, possibly it is. Possibly. Either way, it doesn't matter. Peter says that his sepulcher is with us to this day. Meaning that David is still in the ground. In 2 Samuel 7 says that while David sleeps, then it talks about the, you know, Christ becoming the fulfillment of uh, what comes from the loins of David will be his, the greater one, his Lord. David is described as being asleep while someone other than him is sitting on his throne. That's referring to Jesus. Anyway, I'm getting a little confusing for you, I suppose, by getting into that. So, God will bring with him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. And I'll leave it up to your discretion, Randy. You're a smart guy. Whether it's the spirit that comes back with Jesus that Paul is referring to, or whether it's the body that seems to be what the concentration is on here. And you know why there would be a concentration on the body? Because remember, Thessalonica is in Greece. They're influenced by Greek Greek. Plato's and Aristotle's of the past 
who believed that at the point of death, the body became like the good news disposable razor. It's all used up. You never use it again. It's the worn-out jacket that you throw away and you never recuperate it. So that's how this is being understood by the, the Greeks, the Thessalonians, that the body is useless. It's the soul and only the soul that matters. That's not true. God created the bodies. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We value the human body because it is a creation of God's and that is something that's valuable. And the Greek mind and pagan idea was that the body was useless and the Greeks had this concept that the soul is immortal and that's what matters and only that and wherever it goes, whatever it does, is insignificant. The body for sure is it's a waste and it's useless and will never have any purpose in the future. And that, Paul is saying, is a fallacy. That's why he's saying those bodies of your loved ones that have died who have fallen asleep. What a wonderful category to be put in. You know, when we use, we use terms when we put out a note of so-and-so died or passed away or uh, succumbed, uh, whatever. The Bible word more so is so-and-so fell asleep. I think that's a word that we ought to use more often. Our brother fell asleep today. Fell asleep in the Lord. There's a, those who, are, who die, because it, it will go on to say that uh, those who are in the graves, it says that the, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And, and we have other places like 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about those who are asleep in Jesus. Not everyone in the grave is asleep in Jesus. They're all asleep but only believers are asleep in Jesus because those bodies are going to be attached to their souls that have been redeemed by Christ and they're going to be one in personhood and they're going to be united to Christ in the total capacity of the redemption of our body at the second coming of Christ. So I think Paul's emphasis is on the bodily resurrection with obviously the, the import of the soul being regarded as well in this context because as we go on next week we'll see that we shall be caught up together with them it's those that were living on earth will be caught up with those that had died they're going to be reunited in a life relationship with one another and with christ so there obviously must be an animation not of the body but of the soul entering the body so just to clarify things when a person dies they go into the grave or, or however they're going to be uh, ridded. Whatever's going to be done to the body is secondary. But whatever it is, it turns to ashes. We know it will, it will dissipate. It will, um, rigor mortis will set in and it will be corrupted, would be the word I want to use. The body will be corrupted. But the soul is incorruptible. That's, Jesus said that, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. The soul is imperishable in the sense that it is, has survival capacity above the capacity of the body. We try to keep ourselves alive, the heart beating, the lungs pumping, and all that kind of thing. But when we're alive in Christ, we're alive spiritually, and we don't die ever. <laughs> That's the good news. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes me, though he will live, yet shall he. He will never die because he is the resurrection and life. Even though he de he's dead, he's still alive. So the body and the soul will come together at the second coming of Christ. 
a person when they die, a believer, let's talk about, are in what we call the intermediate state. They are in a state of consciousness. They are with Christ, called by Paul with far greater. Though if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. That's the kind of prospect that we have. And we have the greatest example. When Jesus died, he says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me. Where did Jesus go? When he died, he wasn't non-existent for three days. His body went in the grave. His body was destroyed physically at the cross and with a, with, a, with a crown of thorns upon his head. And here he's looking at his, his bed partner, if you will, on his deathbed, I should say, who's crying out to Christ for being remembered at the kingdom of God, thinking that that's going to be some distant, glorious future time here on earth. When, no, he had a misunderstanding too, like the two on the road to Emmaus, of what the kingdom of God was like. Jesus doesn't even enter into it. Like even the apostles in Acts chapter 1 says, Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's even ignored right there. He says, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's how the kingdom comes without observation because the king is ruling in our hearts right now and we're a part of that spiritual kingdom. There'll be a physical kingdom that will come to the con- in the conclusion at what we call the consummation or the eschaton of all things. But in the meantime, we are in a state of a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and when he says to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise, that's exactly where he was, to be with Jesus, wherever Jesus was. And where would that have been? It would have been in the state of where the righteous were, Abraham's bosom, if you will. He went to be with those who had departed from this earth and whose spirits were in, or souls, I think those are interchangeable words myself, that that part of them, the immaterial part of them, went to a place of peace, tranquility, serenity, where the righteous would go. That's where Jesus went. And he's, a, he's assuring the thief on the cross. In essence, he's saying, your sins are forgiven. You are bound for glory now. You are my child. I'm adopting you at this moment as one of my children, and you're going to be right with me there in paradise. That's a consolation, isn't it, sister, brother, whoever you are? As we get older, we're getting closer to that finish line. But guess what? There's something on the other side. We're leaving this behind, but here we have no abiding city, but we'll look for one to come. This is not heaven. This is just a passageway for us to go to glory because Christ is the one who we are following, and he's going to take us all the way to glory. But what did it take, in conclusion, what did it take for us to have this knowledge and this assurance that when Christ comes, those who have fallen asleep, and we'll talk about next week, those who are alive, that we're going to be with Christ. It took an awesome payment that Jesus had to pay to pay the penalty of your sins. Has Jesus died for you? Did he pay the price of your sins on the cross? When you think of Jesus on the cross, what does that mean to you? Do you have an image of what it must be like? Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said that before he even went as a lamb, sacrificing himself on the altar of the cross. I want you to look at this picture. If you're a Catholic, don't come up and kiss it. 
uh, or execute. It's not my point here, excuse me, but I want you to see the picture that uh, our brother's going to put up on the screen. Several pictures. It's hard to look at. If you've been to the Passion Movie, you have seen these pictures. This is just a, a, a slight portrait of what it must have been. I don't know how well you can see that back there, but uh, <clears throat> it does give you an idea of uh, what a crucifixion was like. There on the top left, you can see Jesus on his back. Of course, this isn't Jesus, and it's not to be, I'm not trying to portray this as Jesus, but a facsimile of what a crucifixion would be like. And think of Jesus. There he is lifted up on the cross. There he is, his hands nailed to, to the wood, the feet nailed to the wood. There he is in a crucifixion position. And notice the soldier with the spear pierced his side. Forthwith there came their own blood and water. And there is Jesus hanging on the cross, maybe saying, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did ever such love or sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my heart, my life, my all. This is the king of kings, brothers and sisters. This is our savior who died in our room instead. He bore our punishment, his own body on the tree. Does it mean anything to you? Think about this. This is the Lord's Supper. The question is asked, did he do this for you? If you're not sure, don't take the Lord's Supper. If you are sure, if you really have embraced Christ, you've trusted him, my hope on nothing less is built than Jesus and the blood he spilt. If you're truly trusting Christ as your Savior, these elements that we're going to distribute soon, the bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood, if this crucifixion of the King of Kings for a sinner like you is a reality, if you are clinging to the cross... Paul says, God forbid that I should glory or boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what our boast is in? I have no rights to heaven whatsoever. My seal is doomed to go to hell apart from him. Dying is my substitute. Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown in love beyond degree. Here is the king of kings. I began by talking about a coronation of royalty and what it would be like to have the fame and popularity. Here he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And you see slaughtering mocks on the Son of God in your mind and maybe through this picture, these pictures that give us a little sense of what it means for Jesus to have died and taken our place. What pictures and what that movie could never have shown is Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord, God the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. No picture could ever depict that. No picture could show the inward parts of what Jesus was going through when he was undergoing the pain, undergoing the pains of hell for you and I. How meaningful is that to you? We're going to sing as a, a musician comes up and as we're going to sing a few songs. 
Let's go to Calvary. We don't need to have to have that picture up right there. We're going to get the lyrics up instead. But I want us to think about what we're going to be singing about that will prepare our hearts to remember our Lord Jesus.
sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunge